Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. You know, the people are agitated. The, the feeling in the air is one of great hostility. There's a, a groundswell of opinion that the leader must go. Now, every night for the past two weeks, a crowd has gathered in the central square of the city to protest. Violence seems on the edge of all that is happening. The people are in the mood for change. They want new leadership. Do you know that kind of language? It could have been used of much of the Arab Spring over the last few years, couldn't it? In the reports about people who are discontent with their leaders. The sense of uh, the people who have have dictators and the dictators have not uh, delivered for them and now they want them to go. Uh, The feeling that people have when uh, the people in authority are there really just to line their own pockets and so they want to get rid of them and have a new uh, leader who will rule for them. Now maybe it's one of the reasons why people in general seem to like democracy so much. People like the the thought that they can actually uh, appoint new leaders after a certain period of time. There's not a dictator who's going to be there and rule for his own self-interest. And you know, the thought of being able to get rid of your ruler and get a new one is probably quite a good thing when you look at the history of humanity and the sinfulness of leaders who have exploited those that they're meant to be looking after. You see, and so we have scepticism often of leaders, don't we? We see that even on a small scale. We don't like people off. We don't often like being told what to do by someone else. And that we're always looking for something better. And when we come to this psalm, I think that's the thing that we're meant to see what's going on here. You see, the people are in turmoil. They're conspiring together. And you see what they're saying in verse 1. You see what he says? Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Do you see that? You see, it's that groundswell of discontent that's there among the nations, among the peoples. And we're not meant to just think of the nations in general, as in the kind of a country, but the peoples inside the nations. They are conspiring together, they're plotting together. And what they're plotting to do is to get rid of their king. But verse 2 is quite surprising. You see, because it's not that their earthly king that they're discontent with. Indeed, the kings actually join in with this discontent. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together. You see, it's the the leaders of the people endorsing the view of those that they are um, in in command over. And together, the, the leaders and the people, they're agitated. They want rid of the king. You see, it's a picture here of a universal rebellion. Of people all over the world, of all people together, gathering against the king to say, we don't want this king, we want rid of him. And all people participating in it. The people want a new leader. And you see, the rebellion is against God and his anointed. Did you see how verse 2 continued? Have a look at it. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. You see, it's against the Lord. This groundswell of opinion that we want a new leader is against God. Against God Almighty and his anointed one. 
You see, in particular, what they're saying in particular, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. You see, they want to be free from God. They don't want God to be able to tell them what to do. But you see, there's more than that he meant here, I think. I think what they're saying really is that they don't want to belong to God. They want to be their own people. They don't want to have a a chain around their neck, if you like, which says, I own you. They're upset about having an owner. Imagine being in the crowd as they murmur and as they complain. Can you imagine being in that, that group, murmuring against God? What would they say? God's a killjoy. God's an oppressive beast. God wants to just crush us and then take away any enjoyment of life that we might have. We want freedom from this oppressive king. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? You see, it's what people have always done with God. People have always sought to be free from God. That's what happened in Genesis 3. Do you remember back then? Now Adam and Eve placed in this amazing garden by God to care for it and look after it with, with everything that they could possibly want. And God gave them one rule so that they could express that he is king for them. And yet they didn't want to be ruled by God. They wanted to be able to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. They didn't want God to tell them that. And so Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. And Adam sinned with along with Eve. By rejecting God, they said, we want to be free. They wanted independence from him. And it's what everybody has done ever since that time. Independence from God. They don't want God to be God over them. You see, people do not like the concept of a God who's in charge of them. And who can tell them what to do and how to live. Now, people don't seem to mind so much a God who they can wheel out when they want something from him. But the concept of a God who will tell you what to do or how to live, people don't want that. And so all people have rejected their kings. The the king, God, they say they do not want him to be king. And you know, when you read the Bible, you see that rejection most clearly seen when you see the Lord Jesus. Now you need to remember as, we, as I say that, what the word anointed one means there. In, in Hebrew the word for anointed one is Messiah. And when Messiah is translated into Greek you get Christ. You see the Christ, the Messiah, is the anointed one. And when we hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're hearing about the anointed one, God's anointed one. You see, the term Christ is not a surname. So now he wasn't Jesus' first name, Christ's second name. It was a title. So now if the Queen came here this morning and, and I introduced her as uh, Elizabeth, Queen of England, then you wouldn't be thinking I was telling you what her surname was. The Queen of England is a title. Or the same way you could say David Cameron, Prime Minister. It tells you what the role is and who he is. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying here is the anointed one of God, the one spoken of in this psalm. And listen to what people did to him. You know, when uh, Peter was explaining uh, to a crowd in Acts what was happening to Jesus and what he says, this is what what he said. He said, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. 
And he said, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then he says in the prayer, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now what was the result of that conspiring against Jesus and his, the Lord's anointed? Well, do you remember the cry of the crowds as Jesus was there before Pilate? Crucify him. Crucify him. A picture of the rebellion of the world as they stood against the Lord and his anointed one. You see, if we were there at that time, we would have stood with that crowd and shouted, crucify him with them. You see, because we are part of a humanity which has always wanted to reject God and have nothing to do with him. To be independent, to be free. There's a couple of hymns which pick it up. I don't know if you remember Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued. Or the line in one of Stuart Townend's um, hymns. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Do you know what the psalm presents here is not something which is abstract or what a few people do. It's what we all do. You see wanting to throw off the shackles of God is most clearly expressed when people want to throw off the shackles of Christ. You see, Jesus is God's son, his anointed, and people want nothing to do with him. And our actions often betray that that is the heart that we have as well. Well, from the king that we reject, we move to the king that we have, in verses 4 to 9. You see, the, the Psalms presented this picture of the world against God and his anointed one. And then verse 4, it shows you a little bit more of what's actually going on. You see, the point of verses 4 to 9 is that there is a king. You see, even though the world has rejected him, even though people in our society think we've moved beyond God, it's not true. You see, here is God pictured, and it's almost as if we were a fly in the wall in heaven, peeking in to see what's going on there. You see, people have rejected him, and here is God's response. Do you see it in verse 4? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Do you know as people reject God and stand against him, God's not anxiously pacing around heaven thinking, what on earth am I going to do? He's not wringing his hands thinking, what on earth can I do to get out of this situation? Now look at what it says here. The one enthroned. Here's God on his throne, sitting down. And he laughs. He scoffs at them. The picture I think we're meant to see here is of the awesome greatness of God and the puny might of mankind who are standing against him. So the thing that I kind of think of during the cartoons, where you'd often see the, the kind of the, the big guy with his hand on the little guy's head, is the little guy's kind of just swinging punches at him, and the big guy just stands and drinks his drink or eats his sandwich. You know, the, the swinging of the punches, it can't even get near. 
That's the picture that we're getting here of God. You know, he's the one enthroned in heaven and he laughs at the stupid rebellion of mankind. You see, the rebellion is a pointless act. A futile act when God is so big and so strong and so powerful. And then God terrifies them. Do you see in verse 5? Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Saying. You know, as people rebel against God, he's not just indifferent to that. But God's angry at it. Angry at the effects of sin. Angry because people are treating him with disrespect and evil. And so he terrifies them. So I wonder what, what, what terrifies you? What kind of things absolutely terrify you? Maybe with the person next to you as well, I'll break. A, tell, tell the person next to you what terrifies you. Hopefully they won't use it against you. So have, a, have a 30 seconds. What terrifies you? Okay, let's draw that back together then. Maybe you've got something to use against your friends now if you know what terrifies them. Uh, one of the things that really terrifies me is height. I don't know if anybody's... Has anybody ever been to the Eden Project? You've been there, we went there last year and they've got this kind of uh, high kind of... I don't know what you call it, kind of walkway that you can get right up onto the top. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. And I stepped onto it and I was just terrified. I just couldn't move. I had to go back. As this thing's just gently swaying kind of way up in heights. Heights terrify me. But but would this terrify you? Because look at what the people are terrified about, about God here. Do you see how he terrifies them? Look at verse 6. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Do you feel terrified? Do you feel a pang of fear? Now you see God's installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. Do you remember the things that make you think, oh dear, I'm in for it now, I'm done for? Do they cause you fear? And I suspect for many of us, those words, you can read them and it doesn't cause you to fear. And yet if we really understood what's going on here, I think they should cause us to fear. You see what verses 79 then say about this king, about the Lord Jesus as we've seen. There's a verse 7, it's as if the, the anointed now is speaking. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. See what God says? You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now I've got, I've got three boys, Nathaniel, Harry and Joel. And can I tell you, I love my boys very much. And if somebody was going to bully them, I wouldn't stand back and cheer them on. I would be trying to stop it. Because I love them. Now I'm not going to be pleased that they're being treated badly. In the same way, God's not going to be indifferent to people bullying and treating his son badly. He's bound up with his son. He loves his son. He's personally interested in him. You see, and it is speaking of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember those, uh, the two incidents in the life of uh, Jesus when God speaks from heaven? Uh, maybe you might want to turn, turn to Math, uh, Mark chapter 1 and we'll see them together. So Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, right at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry, he, uh, he's appeared on the scene. He comes from Nazareth and he comes to John. And so Mark... Chapter 1, verse 9. 
It said, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And you see the same words, you are my son. And then when Jesus is transfigured before some of the disciples, when he's transformed in Mark chapter 9, you see the same thing. Flip over to Mark chapter 9. Verse 7. Jesus has been transformed in front of his disciple. And then verse 7 says, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. You see, it's not just uh, the Gospels which record this. In Hebrews chapter 1 we read, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. You see, Jesus Christ is God's son. And it's through his resurrection that he has proved with power to be the son of God. And that's what we see in Romans. Now in Acts chapter 13 it says this, We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers he has fulfilled for us their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. You see, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, it proved that here is God's son. And Jesus is God's son, and his resurrection proves it. And more than that, his resurrection proves what else we see here in Psalm 2. You see, God says to his anointed that he will have all authority and power now look at verses 8 to 9. God says to this anointed again, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So the kingdom of the anointed one will extend to the ends of the earth, right over the whole world. Just think for a moment of empires that have been in the world so far in history. The British Empire, once it looked unstoppable and huge, yet it never quite extended all over the world. And it's also gone. Or think of the Ottoman Empire in the 16th and 17th century. It extended into three continents, controlling much of southern Europe, western Asia and North Africa. And yet it was hardly the end of the earth, was it? Or think of the Roman Empire... At once it was enormous, it was powerful, unstoppable, but now gone. Before that there was the Persian Empire, the biggest empire that anybody had ever seen, and yet it's not here now. What about the US? It's hardly an empire which extends all over the world. But you see, the, uh, the kingdom of this anointed one, do you see, is going to make... To the right to the ends of the earth will be his. The kingdom of the anointed is universal and his kingdom will extend to the ends of the earth and last forever. And resistance to this kingdom is futile. You see, for the anointed one rules. You see in verse 9? 
You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. It's a picture of power in this ruling that this anointed one will do. I wonder, have you, ever, have you ever hit something with a metal pole? I wonder, who's, who's hit something with a metal pole? That would be quite interesting. Put your hand up if you've hit something with a metal pole before. Yeah, yeah, there's a few, yeah, a few, yeah. Yeah, a few people hit things with metal poles. And what happens when you hit something with a metal pole? I mean, if you hit a wall or a tree or something, maybe not much is going to happen. But what about the, the little pot that you made on holiday when you were 12 that's got those nice little pictures of flowers painted on them? Can you imagine lining that up with your metal pole? Now the pot's not going to have much chance, is it, really? That's the picture of verse 9. He rules with an unstoppable power. And resistance to that is like a, a little china pot that will shatter before him. Can you start to see the picture that we are being painted off? Here is the Lord anointed his son who's got a kingdom which extends to the ends of the earth and has such authority and power that resistance is futile to him. And you start to see why we should be terrified at such a thought. Someone with the backing of God in this way, what chance have they got? And do you remember the words of Jesus at his resurrection? As he appears to the disciples and as he gives them the great commission. Do you remember how he starts that in Matthew 28? Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, the words of Psalm 2 here are not just something which was written to make nice poetry. They were written to explain something about the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus is real and he is the king presented here. You know, we often can think, or people can often think of Jesus as a, a gentle, meek and mild kind of character. It's quite nice really, but a, a bit pathetic. We'll see who Jesus really is. Jesus is this king. He's the king with all authority and power like this. And this is the person who's right at the heart of Christianity. So I've met a number of people recently who've said they like Christianity because of its morals. Or they like Christianity because it's a good way to live a life. It's a, it's a good way to enjoy life. But you see, that misses the point. Yes, Christianity's got good morals. Yes, it's a good way to live life. But it misses the point because right at the heart of Christianity is the Lord Jesus. Right at the heart of Christianity is this King. It's much more than a lifestyle. And see, what Christianity proclaims is that we are people who have rebelled against the king. It proclaims who the king is. The king that we've seen here. That we're all guilty of rebellion against that king. And so it should cause us to fear. Because we've been found out. And there's consequences of rejecting such a king. Well, come to realise that all people have sinned against God and his anointed, and that should bring fear. And it should cause you to say, what should I do? What should I do? Well, the last part of the psalm proclaims the king that we need. It tells us what to do. You see in verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. You see the call? Be wise. Be warned. Be wise and act rightly. 
be warned and change your behaviour. And it's addressed to the kings and the rulers here. But remember, they're the leaders of the people. They're meant to draw the people along with them. It's the way in which it's called to all people. Learn the lesson of the psalm. That's what God says to us today. Be wise. We are people who reject God naturally. And we are those those who are in danger of the king if you continue in that foolish rebellion. So verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It can be hard for us, can't it? Give up the right to my own life and to accept God and his anointed. Listening to Jesus and following him. Not just listening to Jesus when it suits me. When it kind of matches up with what I want to do at this particular time. But listening to Jesus when it doesn't match up with what I want to do and how to live. You see, if you're making Psalm 2 one of the songs that it goes along your uni life. The things which you look back and you remember. Well, this has to be part of what is going to make your and shape your uni life. Will you be constantly humbled before a God like this and serve him and him only? And verse 12 says the same thing with it, just in a slightly different way. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the point is here, if you continue in rebellion against God, there may come a point when it's too late. The judgment of God is coming and will come suddenly when you're not expecting it. Do not presume on the kindness or mercy of God. If you continue in rebellion against him, you'll be destroyed, is what the psalm says. But you see the ending of the psalm. It's quite lovely. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know, we feel that, if, that we'll be less free if we're bound to someone else. And yet the picture here of taking refuge in the Son, becoming his, is not a picture of being restricting you. But it's a picture of comfort and security. Comfort and security which comes from taking refuge in Jesus. And so it means abandoning the quest for freedom and happiness in the things that we do. It means trusting in Jesus and him only for our eternal security. You see, we don't take refuge and think, maybe my sin will count against me. We take refuge and know that he's paid the price for our sin. I don't know about you, but I know when I look in my life that there's many ways in which I've stood against God. And the ways in which I've sinned and rebelled against him. Things which really, truly should stand against me when I face God. And so I realise I need to take refuge in this one. And that there I can find great blessing. And, And finding that blessing, it's not that he's holding over me the threat of what I've done in the past. He says it's forgiven, it's done. That was why the anointed one died on the cross for us. Died on the cross to face the wrath of God for what we have done. So that we might go free. You see in this psalm we have the proclamation of the Christian gospel. The forgiveness of sins which is proclaimed to all. 
Do you know, our biggest problem is that we've rejected God and all the actions which flow from that. But the gospel shows that we can be forgiven if we take refuge in the Son. What a joy to know the blessing of this King. You see, truly, this is the King that we all need. You see, Psalm 2, the King we have rejected, the King who's really there, and the King that we really need. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is that King. Well, there's some questions in your groups now to discuss and to think about the meaning of the psalm a little bit more.